what we often do is we stand at the edge thinking that we can go off and buy a set of angel wings, you know, before we'll jump. We want the wings before we jump. We want the guarantee. Welcome to Brave New Girls podcast. We're here to bring you the courage and confidence to build on your own Brave New Girl journey. Please press subscribe so that we can bring you more awesome women to help more people and create a more healthy planet. My guest this week is Sarah Wilson, journalist, TV host and author of this one wild and precious life. Her earlier multi-New York Times best-selling books are First Make the Beast Beautiful and I Quit Sugar, which advocates for a sugar-free lifestyle and sparked a wellness movement. Now living mostly out of a backpack, she focuses on sustainable living, mental health advocacy and environmental issues in her work. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. It's great to have you. I've been reading your books and I feel like I'm at a slight advantage because I feel like I know you so well through your words and and you don't know me at all. So we're going to start with the latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life. And I love the byline too, Our Path Forward in a Fractured World. So can you tell us what you're aiming with this book? Yeah, it really was to try to find a way to comprehend and fathom the climate crisis. Um, basically, I was looking around at the time. This is, you know, when I was setting out to write the book and I was struggling with like, how do we take on this information? But I was seeing everybody else was as well. And I was watching some people getting involved in activism, but then other people not and and the activists were getting frustrated like how come people aren't understanding this you know um and of course climate activism and the whole climate fight entails everybody getting involved like we all need to shift our behavior if we're going to make the changes that are going to save us you know and save our lives on this one wild and precious planet so i felt that the techniques that were being used and the approach that was being used wasn't working and so I went on a three-year kind of journey around the world with one backpack um, and it was a carry-on day pack to follow in the footsteps of philosophers and thinkers and poets and scientists to try to work out if there was a mindset that could actually get us all engaged and also feeling a sense of belonging a sense of meaningfulness a sense of peace in it all. Now, in the process, the Me Too thing happened, the George Floyd thing happened, COVID happened. So it involves all of these things. And they really are all the same problem. The climate crisis is is one manifestation of it. But as I point out um, in, in the book, it really is the biggest issue that we face. And it's the one that we avoid. We pretend it's not there, you know, but it's become the elephant in the room. But the elephant has taken over the room. But yeah, I wanted to make it sexy. I was the editor of Cosmo for many years in my late 20s and early 30s. And um, I know that to make us get engaged with difficult information, we've got to make this new way of being sexier than the status quo. And so I needed to find a way to do that. And hiking was sort of something that was becoming quite popular. And I figured that was a way to tell the story. And as it turns out, it was a very effective trope. And so why is that? What, what is it about hiking that allows people to 
let their minds stop being so defensive or fearful because people are afraid, almost too afraid to think about this massive thing or apathetic or the complete opposite, you know, in the kind of following the footsteps of someone like Greta Thunberg, where they're kind of going hell for leather and then burning out. So there feels like there's no really good way. So finding a path through hiking is is an interesting one. So what was it about that 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 helps people to have access? Yeah, so hiking, um, there's been about 45,000 studies done on the benefits of walking in nature. And in South Korea and Japan, they draw on those studies to inform their health policy, as well as parts of Scandinavia. And um, so it's a very legit realm of science and becoming more and more so. So, I mean, I don't look at all 45,000. I look at quite a number of the studies and I sort of paraphrase a bunch of the really cool ones. So there's basic things like, for instance, the fractals that we see in nature, those repeated patterns in fern fronds and wave pools and so on. When we see them, basically our retinas also work to fractals. Our retinas are made up of repeated patterns and we get this congruence. And so when we see beautiful things in nature, we get this sense of belonging. There's this kind of um, psychological clicking in that happens. And so anyone who's walked in nature will know that you suddenly get this feeling of, oh, I belong somewhere, this relief, you know, this wonderful kind of relaxed feeling. So that's one study that explains it. There's, you know, a bunch of studies that show that trees get give off chemicals that can um, result in, they're similar to what oxytocin does in our brains, you know, it creates this beautiful sense of belonging as well. Or, you know, when we're out in nature and we have an elevation, we get this sense of awe, which is essentially this sense that we are small, um, and, you know, in the sort of the, the bigger picture. And that makes us actually feel less responsibility, but also makes us feel like we belong to something bigger, all of that kind of thing. So I always say to people, you don't have to worry about it or overthink it. Um, just start walking in nature and it does its job on you. You know, people say to me, oh, but I don't know, is it working? I said, just start walking for 20 minutes. That's all it takes. So in terms of trying to piece through complex information, walking is the best thing for it and that's why people have walking meetings it's also why the thinkers that i follow in the footsteps of such as nietzsche um and you know other incredible thinkers and artists and poets and scientists they walked to try to nut out complex issues so um i've always known that it works because intuitively i set out to work my way through this climate issue by hiking. And then I realized, oh my God, this is what everybody could do. So it was a combination of reading the science on it, realizing that other thinkers had done it, and also having done it myself all my life. I've got severe anxiety, um, as you know, I've written about in the past in, in another book called First We Make the Beast Beautiful. And, you know, one of the biggest salves for me has been hiking um, and hiking, obviously, in nature. So um, that's that's sort of, yeah, the premise behind it. And of course, at the same time, COVID was happening, all this stuff was happening in the world and people started hiking. So hiking has become popular, um, you know, around the world, particularly amongst young women, which is great. You know, that's sort of almost my target audience. And I want to go into how you go from that, from the connection, both to nature and within, um, and then turn that into action a bit later on but first of all can we go back right back to the beginning to the little girl you were and to thinking about the clues that might have been there to the woman that you have become and the work that you do now 
I grew up on a subsistence living property out, so, you know, out in the middle of nowhere uh, with lots of brothers and sisters. Mum and dad were, were poor. Dad always says to me, we weren't poor, Sarah, we were broke. And I get the distinction, so I always need to add that into any answer I give on this subject. So I guess we had to make do with very basic things. We didn't have a rubbish service, so everything that came into the house, we had to find a, a way to get rid of any of the, you know, the packaging or, or whatever. And it was all used. Everything was used. Um, we bought very little of anything new. And my childhood was spent, you know, I mean, it sounds bucolic and idyllic. It wasn't. It was the middle of a drought. There was bush. There were terrible bushfires raging constantly, so it was pretty rough, you know. And we had no money as well. You know, this is an era when I had to commute into school, and all the other kids were, you know, going to school excursions, having the latest fads, and they'd do their rounds, you know, collecting like little, you know, rubbers or erasers, you know, hula hoops. I I was never able to partake in that kind of thing. So I suppose it introduced me to the idea of going without and actually finding joy in that. I think some people could relate, could react to the upbringing that I had by becoming mass consumers. My brothers and my sister and I didn't. We actually went, oh, this makes sense. Why would you want to own a whole of shit that, you know, gets in the way? So that probably informed a few things. But then I went on to work for Rupert Murdoch at News Limited, um, you know, as a journalist. I then was the editor of Cosmopolitan, which was a magazine that sold a whole heap of stuff to women that they really don't need, and then hosted television shows like MasterChef, where people did my hair and makeup. So it, I was always kind of, it was always very odd. I still lived very simply. I always rode a bike. I didn't buy new fashion, even when I was at Cosmopolitan. So I stuck to my values. It was a weird combination. I guess my, my upbringing meant that I had very clear eyes on what it was that I was doing. So I was able to treat my job at Cosmopolitan, for instance, as a job. And I learned lots of things and I tried to change the way that maybe women engaged with politics and other issues because it was an era when people were starting to let that all drop off. So, yeah, I guess my, my childhood probably informed all of that. I was also very curious. Um, I had anxiety as a child um, and, you know, I was very much a loner. Um, but that meant that I probably discovered the world and the way it worked on my own terms with very little influence. And so as a result, I am able to be an activist today because I kind of was distant from what all the other girls did. I was bullied terribly, but I learned at a young age to move on from that to actually get on with a life that was separate to what all the other people were doing. So, yeah, all of those things, I think, led me to where I am today. And all of those things also tend to make us outsiders. And when we're outsiders, we mm. have a view on the world that, that is from the outside in. And so we pick up on things that other people might, might not. And, and so one of those things was was around sugar and and the idea of quitting sugar and I don't know whether that was part of your anxiety and your search for finding things to kind of help ease that struggle so how did that all come about I got very very unwell and that's why I ended up leaving mainstream media so I developed an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's and I had a very very bad case of it or rather I let it go and go and go and untreated because I just thought I was a problem, my, you know, the slowdown in energy, you know, my foggy brain, all of that kind of thing, the changes that were happening to my body. I just thought it was like, oh, come on, Sarah, get focused, 
you know, you can do this. And I just work harder and harder to try to get on top of things. But eventually it all fell apart through a bunch of bizarre circumstances, which I explain in the book. I wound up having a test for something completely unrelated and they discovered that I had this disease. And I ignored it for about six months and got to a point where I was unable to walk. And the doctor said that I was two weeks from heart failure. I was an absolute mess. So I had to leave and I took off and lived in the forest um, north of Sydney, about eight hours north of Sydney, in a old army shed um, because that's all I could afford. And I'd, I'd had to sell off all of my possessions because I hadn't worked for quite some time by this stage because I'd been so unwell. So, um, yeah, I had to start experimenting with different things. I didn't have money to go and see therapists and nutritionists and so on, but Twitter had just been invented. So I started tweeting about my journey. I experimented with not eating sugar. I gave it a go. I knew that it was a piece in the puzzle and I got results very, very quickly in terms of my anxiety, but also my disease, the inflammation. So I just kept going and going. And I was experimenting with all kinds of things and writing about it at the time. And yeah, it worked. So it just developed like I learned how to create an ebook. You know, this is very early days in all of this. I spent $100 doing an online course on it. And that's the only money I ever spent on the business was this first $100. So it became, this book became an Amazon bestseller and then it became a New York Times bestseller once, once it became a print book. And it just kind of kept morphing along and I kept refining the science. I ran the program for free for two years as I was sort of, I'm trying to understand all the information and it was very new you know a lot of people criticized me there was a lot of pushback everything I've ever done like publisher I remember said to me you always choose the problem that people don't want to face and I'm like oh yeah I guess so so at the time there was a lot of pushback from the sugar industry I got a lot of trolling from paid trolls um, that were paid for by stuff that I'll mention the brand coca-cola I've been very you know, open about, about this kind of thing. Yeah, governments as well pushed back on me. Then, you know, people started to realise, oh, this might be legit. This is, you know, this could be a real thing. This might be what's making us sick. And of course, today, you know, there's sugar-free written on just about everything, which is, you know, wonderfully satisfying in many ways. So that's, that's how I, I landed there. And everything I've done in my career, it's come about from me being curious venturing into the realm, playing around often in new technology that before most people enter it. So I get sort of into it early and start to understand it and utilize it. I generally get out early as well. And yeah, and then opportunities start to come, you know, like even when I was writing, um, I was a restaurant reviewer. That was my first job in journalism. And that sounds like amazing, except that I did it for free and redesigned the magazine, the weekend magazine's restaurant pages you know, on Quark, which was a design program back then that I learned to sort of use on a weekend. You know, I, I trained myself on how to use it and I presented it to the editor and I was doing work experience at the time. And she went, all right, you've got a job. So it was, it's always been through just being so interested in something and curious and always happy to do it for free or to just do it out of passion. And, and then it turns into, into a juggernaut quite often. And the I Quit Sugar business did turn into a juggernaut and you chose to walk away. I thought at first that you'd sold it, but actually you you gave it away, didn't you? And and so what was that? And 
And how did that feel? Was it liberating to sort of walk away from this thing, massive thing that you'd built? And what were you walking towards? And and how was your sort of mental health around that? And was it a sort of protective mechanism to move forward? Well, I did sell the business. I sold it off in two tranches, um, but I gave all the money away. So every t- so part one was selling off a bunch of the assets, including all the furniture. I mean, I had 26 staff by the time I closed the business down. So I sold off everything. And then I eventually solved the electronic rights to a business. And it, it runs today as I quit sugar by, you know, with, with other owners. And um, all of that, it gradually sort of sold off in bits and pieces. And I gave every cent to charity and continue to give anything I get from I quit sugar to charity. Yeah, it was a decision I made that was based on when I got very sick. So I, and I write about this in both books because they sort of one part happened in first we met the beast beautiful and then the chapter kind of continued into the next book and the two books work together a little like that you know there's almost a part one and a part two to what is a quite a similar journey you know but yeah i wrote about it in first we make the beast beautiful that i was at the point of suicide and i was very close it was anyway in this moment i decided to live and when i decided to live it was only because i had this complete drop down of awareness like oh my god I could do this mortal coil on my own terms I could choose not to be caught up in the system and to be dictated to by all these things that were making me miserable and which had taken me to the brink to the brink where I was about I was really close seconds away so essentially I chose to live and I chose to live on my own terms and I and I promised to myself I would never I would fight to never get caught up again. Now that takes vigilance. And when I quit sugar started to take off, I did the sensible thing and I got an accountant and he said, all right, he had a whiteboard and he said, okay, so what's your five-year plan? And I'm like, oh, I don't have financial goals. Do I have to do this? And he's like, yep, come on, make up something. Like, so I went, okay, in five years, I want to have earned enough money to live off the minimum wage for the rest of my life until I'm 94. And I would like to spend my life creating stuff, creating things that are going to, that's going to help humanity, that's going to, that's going to be helpful and worthwhile. So he said, okay, anyway, he went, set up, he went ahead and did all this. And I, I notoriously don't spend any money to the point where the tax department contacts my accountants and goes and says, what's going on here? Because I spend so little. And this happens every couple of years. They have to explain that, no, no, it's legit. She, she literally doesn't spend money. So I managed to save all this money. I set myself up. And at the five-year mark to the week, my accountant rings me and says, you've achieved your goal. And I'm like, cool. And he said, what's, what now? And I said, we sell everything. And give everything away if i've reached that goal i don't need anything more going forward so so that was what i guess led to that decision so to answer your question it was a commitment i'd made when i decided to live and to live fully and i remain committed to that commitment and whenever i veer from it things go wrong whenever i get too caught up and i grip things there's no flow as soon as i release and start to let go of possessions, let go of expectations and all the stuff that keeps everybody caught up in fashion and, I don't know, mortgages and sending their kids to private schools and all that stuff. Uh, as soon as I 
I get sick and um, nothing happens. So I just release, I release, I release. And it's not easy because I'm still in this world, you know. Yeah, I try to stay true to it as much as I can. And in First We Make the Beast First We Make the Beast Beautiful. I just love that title. I do get tongue-tied for that. It is a beautiful title for something that is such a dark place for people when when we are going through the, the, the anxiety and um, the stress that you describe. And you find lots of different ways to, to help yourself. I really like that because we're very often told that there's a kind of quick fix or there's a one thing that helps us Mm -hmm. with our anxiety. And actually, we have to kind of create our own tailored, personalized way to tackle it. And many of the things that you that you tried that you do uh, are all really, really helpful to you and for others. And one of the things is meditation. And so can you share how you came to it and why you find it helpful? Yeah, well, I came to it um, reluctantly and I write about it in the book like I was in a really bad place I hadn't slept for days I have bipolar and so the book you know chronicles my journey with bipolar from when I was diagnosed at 21 and so on and my journey to through medication and then you know all different practices that help me to modulate things and it's mostly as you would know having read the book it's about reframing the whole concept of anxiety through a philosophical spiritual lens which gives it purpose and then you start to realize what's been medicalized and so we can actually make our beast beautiful you know hence the title so i had been wandering around the neighborhood lost having not having slept and three people on three separate occasions had suggested that i needed to go and see this particular meditation teacher called tim so i front up at his doorstep a complete skeleton of a human and um i'm resistant to the whole idea I said to him I've got a prejudice against people like you (laughs) I was thoroughly obnoxious and he's like meditation will help with that anyway I just learned to trust and in fact Brene Brown and I once spoke at the same conference and we talked about this that we have a three strikes and we act rule so if I hear about something three times in a row I'm like oh god I'm gonna have to go and do that thing or follow up on it or you know complete whatever it might be that the universe is telling me to do. So yeah, meditation started to work almost immediately, very much like sugar. And they happened at around about the same time. So I started to really see some dramatic changes. And what it did was enable an openness and expansiveness that then enabled me to start to piece through how I felt about things. Tim became one of my closest friends. So this was 15 years ago when I learned to meditate with him. But tragically, he took his own life only two months ago. So, you know, the journey never stops. And you might recall that he he shares a lot of wisdoms with me in that book, including this idea of he always used to say to me, Sarah, keep the camera rolling. The story hasn't finished yet. You know, and he used to say to that, that to me when I'd get really caught up and worried about a particular thing. He's like, it's leading somewhere. Like, you know, he's, he would say to me, you're a storyteller. You need to go out into the world and tell your stories and live, live the stories, but keep the camera rolling. Anyway, so yes, meditation has been an incredible gift. I'm not always good at it. I go through phases where I drop off and I have done recently, but I'm now you know, 
pulsing back to meditation because I notice when I you know haven't done it for quite some time I don't have the centeredness the expansiveness of thought and emotion um, that I do when I do meditate so yeah that's how I came to it and yes the journey continues with you know having had that incredible loss but interestingly when I meditate um, I feel Tim with me he is with me like 100 percent. it's like he hasn't left I lost my very, very close friend this summer and she was a very spiritual person and that was when I started meditating and I, I feel her too when I meditate. It's a very mm. strange thing. but it, And mm. what it's done is, is also kind of open my mind to kind of the whole universe and, um, you know, I've been so concerned about the, the planet and, and what we can do about it and and actually, but through meditating, it does kind of open you up to the idea of something so huge. And we're part of that. And there's a sort of a natural laws that are, are playing out and that we we are here to sort of help that. And so where we can m maybe feel like it's all too big, I can't do anything. Whereas actually, when you meditate, it's like, oh, I am part of this and me doing what I can mm. does help. And that's the same, I think, with when we have physical or mental health issues, we start to deal with ourselves. And then when we feel like we're reaching a place where we're in a better place, we are able to look more outwards and, and look at the world around us and want to, to be able to contribute to that. So how do you feel that your journey turned from an inwards one to an outward one with the planet? Well, I've always been a lot more external in the sense that I, I don't shrink from responsibilities or confrontation. And so that probably hasn't been my primary concern. I've often needed to, you know, and Tim used to say to me, be less available, Sarah, you know, he used to sort of try to encourage me to spend more time with my own health. Um, I tend to go the other way. But as you would know, I write about this in this one wild and precious life, that so much of what we are doing today, because we are lacking in leadership, we're lacking in spiritual grounding and sense of meaning. You know, we're really suffering a meaning crisis more than anything else. We go and seek different spiritual ideas and so on and self-care and the self-help realm has very much moved into that quasi-spiritual stuff which is great in many ways but I refer to this idea of you know doing spiritualism light l-i-t-e like the diet version of spiritualism it's also called spiritual materialism or spiritual bypassing and it's this idea of cherry picking the bits that we like the nice sound baths the yoga, the meditation, the me, 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 me stuff. And we conveniently leave out all of the practices and rituals um, that were about going back out into the world and being of service and making sacrifices and putting yourself, you know, behind the, the needs of the collective. And all spiritual traditions were mostly about ensuring that our individualism doesn't run rampant. Even the etiology of the notion of self-care, it came from the, the black activist, Audre Lorde. 
And she, you know, suggested it or put it out there for black women who were just on the front lines of fighting for their survival. That she basically said to keep doing this, you need to go home and have a bath and have a proper meal and come back to the front line tomorrow. And that's what self care is meant to be about. You go, you get rejuvenated, you get your strength, you go and have your little inward journey for a bit. But it is too to come back and be of service. And this is the piece that our society, which has become so individualistic, is leaving out. So that's that's something that I always do try to emphasize is that idea. You know, it's like the monk coming down from the mountain. You can sit up there and meditate for ages, but what's the point? You've got to come back down into the village and help people out and share what you've learned up there on the mountain. So that's what we all need to be doing. You know, I sort of think that that spiritual journey, it can actually be a way of people avoiding the responsibility, the civic responsibility to get out there and and fight and be of service. So I get quite frustrated with some spiritual gurus and spiritual journey men and women because I'm like, yeah, that's great, but it should it should really just be done enough to top up your tank to get out there and be a fully fledged human on this planet today. When we get to that point and we've filled ourselves up and filled our tank again and we're ready to go out there and take action from your latest book what do we actually do when we feel like we've reconnected we feel like we do want to be full stewards of this planet what do we do i do write extensively about that like that's kind of what my book tries to cover and i suppose some of the techniques or mindsets that i think are helpful is this idea of pima chodron she talks about this of start where you are so a lot of people particularly bros tech bros like with money like to come to me and go i want to start a new climate organization it's going to be called this and i'm going to get you know seed funding i'm going to do this i'm like no 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 there are enough climate organisations out there doing incredible work and they know a shit ton more than you do about the politics and the science. So don't pretend otherwise. And also it's a waste of your energy catching up on all of that. So the best thing you can do is, for instance, go to one of these organisations and make them a website or offer to create social tiles for them or show them how to work with the algorithms or whatever it might be. So you start where you are. You don't have to go and reinvent the wheel. And I think a lot of people feel that that's what they're meant to do. And, you know, some of the most powerful stuff is exceedingly local. So I use the example of 2019 in September when there was that big school strike for climate protest that went around the world. In Australia, I worked super hard to try to get people to go along to these protests. And I had people coming up to me like there was a mother, a friend of mine who's a you know, mother of two kids. And she said, I don't know what to do. She said, you know, there's lots of kids and mums and fathers who want to go to the protest, but it's all going to be really too hard. Maybe, maybe I could book a minibus. And I'm like, that's an awesome idea. Go and do it. So she went and did that. And she put it out onto one of the, the WhatsApp groups or something, um, the school group newsletter or something. And it was booked out in 20 minutes. So she then upgraded it to a big coach. She ended up, I think, booking two, three, four coaches and got hundreds of kids and parents to the strike. And then I wrote about it. She did this about a week before the strike. I wrote about it. And then a bunch of other people in other parts of Australia did exactly the same thing with their school. And so her small little start where you are, i.e. she could book a minibus, ended up having a massive ripple on effect. And that's how change happens. So you start with what you can do. So it might be that you uh, do a campaign to stop people using takeaway coffee cups 
you know, disposable single-use cups in your workplace and you create a mug library and then that gets people more enthused and the next person wants to do something else and it trickles. I think a lot of people stand on the sidelines going, I need to do the perfect thing and then they do nothing. So start where you are, then do everything you can. So your everything you can might look differently to mine, but we all know the information. Anyone who doesn't know that eating too much meat, throwing out a whole heap of food, using single-use anything, over-consuming, using your car when you could walk, anyone who doesn't know that, I, I don't know, I, I can't help you. You know what I mean? Like most people know the information. We don't have a lack of education issue going on in 2023. So it's essentially about doing everything you can. And I think the big caveat I'd place on this is to see it as joyful. So I don't live the way that I do because, you know, and, and find it miserable. I do it because I actually love living this way. I've arrived in Paris. I have one suitcase of belongings. I wear the same clothes over and over again. I've, I'm about to turn 50. I've got clothes from when I was 18 and 21 that I'm still wearing. And I've lived this way for more than 15 years. Well, actually all my life, but I've lived out of one bag for coming up for 15 years. And I love it, especially in Paris where everyone lives simply anyway. Nobody has a lot of belongings because the, the apartments are too small. But yeah, I have not owned a car for probably 10 years and I love walking and riding a bike and it keeps me fit. I don't have to think about it too much. You know, I don't have to agonize about getting to the gym um, because I'm always moving. And yeah, the ripples effect of those three things makes it so seductive and easy that, you know, I don't ever sit there going, am I doing enough? How am I going to make a difference? Because it's just the way I live. And then you start to question things as I do in the book and I extrapolate the arguments for questioning the whole capitalist paradigm, which we all know is completely untenable. And you probably recall that I line up the tenets of capitalism with tenets of a cult and they match up perfectly line by line by line. And it's a real revelation for people to probably have someone like me rather than some, you know, feral person ranting and raging. I try to present it in a very calm way. Like, what if this is not how we're meant to be? And in fact, capitalism is a very new construct. And it's a construct that doesn't stack up because infinite growth on a finite planet, you don't have to be a really bright mathematician to work out that doesn't hold. And what do you know, it's not holding. And yeah, we're seeing the, the implications of that. Yeah, it's, it's a big journey, but just don't stand on the sidelines. Get in the arena, as Roosevelt said. You know, be the person in the arena doing whatever they can. And you're allowed to fail. You're allowed to get it wrong. You're allowed to pivot and turn. I have, and I continue to do, do so as, as new information comes to light. And it becomes a way of living, a way of being, which is joyful and meaningful, which is as I said before, ultimately what we're looking for. And when we take action, we build hope. And so what for you is your vision for the future and what do you want to learn next on your journey? Oh, gosh. So I'm writing my next book. In fact, I'm writing two books and they're not going very well. <laughs> like I'm, I, I have to kind of wrestle around with the research and the information for so long. It drives me mental and I'm in that stage at the moment. I hope... And look, hope for me is a very, very, oh, it's, I, I've got a, an ambivalent relationship with hope. Hope at its best should be, 
um, optimism with action. A lot of people have what I think is it's called hopium. They get addicted to the idea that somebody out there will fix the problem for them, that new, some new piece of technology will save us. And I hate to say it, it ain't going to happen. So we need to start actually living realistically and living with truth. So I guess I've turned my attention really to steering as much as I can do towards getting humans to love each other again and to love ourselves, to love humanity, because I think we've lost a lot of faith and trust and respect in the human species because we look around and we see all the fragmentation, we saw, see all the infighting, you know, an issue will come up, whether it's Brexit or um, a referendum that, you know, Australia is currently going through. Um, and it brings out this horrible behaviour in all of us. And it's really not our true behaviour. The circumstances have created it. And we're in a, a horrible space of denial. And denial creates these kinds of behaviours. So, yeah, I, that's what I'm working towards is getting humans to really, to really love being human again. And it's an extension of that idea of this one wild and precious life. If we can learn to love life on this planet, the life that is so beautiful and organic and we've been gifted with, then we will fight to save it. So I guess the next extension of that is to, to love humanity and to want to save humanity because that's where we're at. That is the reality of the scenario right now. That's what I'm putting a lot of my attention towards. I'm reinterpreting a lot of information, all of my thoughts through that lens. And from where you are right now, what advice would you give to your younger self? Those questions are always really bizarre because I'm aware that I would not be here having this life except for the childhood that I had, which was not easy. I was a very anxious child. Really, it was the most, it was a horrible, hor I hated being a kid. I hated being a teenager. I did not really begin to appreciate my life until my mid-30s. So I, the advice I would give, and it's the advice I give to young people who come to see my talks and book readings and that kind of thing, I would say, do you feel that what you're feeling right now makes sense? that it's actually going to lead you somewhere. And whenever I say that to young people, they go, yes, I do. And I said, like, the misery, the anxiety, the, the sense of helplessness, the sense of feeling like you're an outsider, that you don't fit in anywhere. Do you feel that it's going to head somewhere, that it's got a purpose that's bigger and you don't know what it is? And people always say yes. And so I would say to myself, as I say to these young people, well, hold on to that because you're 100% right. That is what happens. And Steve Jobs did a um, commencement speech to Stanford University many years ago. And he talks about how, you know, his life seemingly made no sense. He quit university and then he sat in on typography classes and then he did this and he did that. And he said it looked like a whole heap of dots randomly placed on a page. He said it wasn't until he got older that he realised all of those dots lined up and produced a thread. And so we've actually got to live long enough. We've actually got to get old enough for there to be enough dots on the page for it all to make sense. When we're younger, it just looks like chaos. So yeah, that's probably what I would explain to my younger self, that the dots will line up, it will make sense. And what you're going through now is all part of having a rich, fulfilling, big, wild life. And while we're on that journey, it takes a lot of courage to keep going when it feels like chaos. So how do you define courage? It's a spiritual practice. 
I don't think you can go and read a self-help book on it. I don't think there's a magic sort of trick for it. You just have to choose to be that person and you chip away at it. And it's spiritual because it's about putting yourself second every now and then. It's actually realizing you're not that special and there is a bigger force at play that you will need to attend to and you will get you will actually end up at a selfish level feeling or an individual level feeling far more fulfilled when you attend to that bigger thing so courage i use this metaphor in i think it's yes my first book or you know in first we make the beast beautiful i was seeing a therapist at one stage and i was trying to make a big decision the decision was actually to quit my job at cosmo because i was so sick and the therapist said darling you're you're needing to jump and she said the great thing is is when you jump you always land in a better place that's how life works if you make the brave courageous decision to make the leap you will land in a better place of growth because growth will inevitably come from this and she said you know it's like angel wings come and carry us there and she said but what we often do is we stand at the edge thinking that we can go off and buy a set of angel wings you know before we'll jump we want the wings before we jump we want the guarantee but of or course there's no angel wings shops on this planet yeah exactly or a ladder which is so boring the jump is way better so you know i have that in my mind a lot just jump sarah i have a bunch of mottos that i work to which is say yes i'm just a yes person if somebody comes to me with an offer a genuine invite i say yes because again I keep the camera rolling. There's something here. There's somebody that is wanting something from me. And where I can, I say yes, rather than deny, withdraw, try to hold on to my energy. You know, I just want to keep that flow going. So courageousness is about having a bunch of mindsets that you play with. And I suppose you've got to really believe that there is something bigger than ourselves that we're attending to in these allotted, what, 80, 80, 90 years on this planet so you know how do you want to live really i mean you've got to stand back from your life to to be able to really access these these things you've got to stand back and go oh my god all this stupid fuss and distraction what do i really want you know and of course hiking in nature is a great way to to access uh the answers to those questions thank you so much sarah for helping us to make the most of this one wild and precious life that we have so that we become the caring stewards of our planet that we need to be. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant listening to you and I'd recommend everyone to read your books. And I wish I'd had, had them all when I was younger, but I'm so happy to have them now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Sarah, for showing us how to live well in our lives and for driving a global conversation in equality, truth, purpose, existential risk and climate change you can find out more about sarah's work on www.sarahwilson.com and follow her on instagram at underscore sarah wilson underscore thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you'd like more support and inspiration head over to bravenewgirlmedia.com <laughs>